From the BPP Pro Bono Unit, this is the Universal Podcast of Human Rights, produced by Isma Ayub and me, Sam Grimley. In this episode, we speak to David Hammond and Elizabeth Mavropoulou from the NGO Human Rights at Sea. Today, we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? This is just the most extraordinary scene. We've been hearing about this boat for the last four or five days through very, very occasional phone calls they've got out telling of their desperate plight. Nobody knew where they were. Now we've found it. We believe help is on the way. We don't know quite how long they've been at sea, but it could be many, many weeks. And they've been abandoned by their crew. So their state is absolutely desperate, but just try to imagine the state of other boats that might be out there. Countries in this region have been operating a policy of pushing them back. And I think there'll be something of a tug of war about who is going to take responsibility for these people. But right now, what's absolutely clear is they need help, they need it now, and they certainly need plenty of food and water. It's interesting that our organisation even exists, let alone is seven years old. There had been a massive assumption across state, non-state actors that this was de facto being looked after because we had Human Rights Act, we have European Convention, American Convention on Human Rights, and that human rights was embedded because it's a state responsibility. The maritime environment is a really unique environment. On land, if you have an issue with your car breaking down, for example, you can get out of your car, you can walk down a road to a petrol station, you can make a call and have you know, somebody come out to get you. At sea, if something goes wrong and you're out in international waters, you are on your own. And therefore, if somebody's being bullied, harassed, sexually abused, threatened, there are limited places that they can go to have a safe space. The men do 20-hour days with little food or drinking water. Some are beaten or whipped with stingray tails, and the sick and injured are often disposed of. There are so many different kinds of abuses, not just labour, uh, the issues of abandonment, murders at sea, those lost at sea, or missing under dubious circumstances. Um, we simply can't cover everything. We, we have to be quite ruthless about what we decide to investigate and then publish against. David Hammond, you're the CEO of Human Rights at Sea, but can you tell us what you were doing before you started this NGO? I followed in uh, family footsteps to initially go in the Navy, but realised that actually my main focus in life was doing... Um, a much more robust role uh, in the commandos. So uh, that was the route that I took. We operated all around the world, from jungle to Arctic to desert, from Hong Kong to Northern Ireland to Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, throughout Africa, really a broad spectrum of countries. And am I right in saying you uh, ended up becoming a lawyer in the armed forces and a, and a barrister, is that correct? It is. I was given the opportunity to actually become the first barrister within the history of the Royal Marines since uh, 1664. I worked for the 
Service Prosecuting Authority, um, where I actually ended up specialising in fraud. But there is a whole range of offences within the military, you know, including up to murder and serious sexual offences. So that was hugely interesting. But then the really interesting part is the international advisory work. We would be attached to the the commands either at sea or on land uh, in war zones giving international humanitarian law advice to the command and to the soldiers. So who's getting abandoned at sea? It's where a seafarer has been literally abandoned on board a vessel. An international pay dispute is playing out in Queensland waters with accusations the owners of a Hong Kong cargo ship have underpaid its crew. Authorities have detained the carrier, which has been anchored off Gladstone for almost a month, and rushed supplies to its crew. We cannot uh, get our money because uh, our company is bankrupt. Then I'm worried also about my family for uh, their daily needs and my son. He's uh, born on uh, March 25. Now his uh, first birthday. That uh, I've never seen him. Often the owners disappear. The crew have limited supplies, and they boil seawater. They're fishing off the vessel for food. The vessel itself is starting to break up around them. And one of the longest cases that we dealt with had a crew on board for 33 months. That's 33 months not leaving the vessel. In reality, when Human Rights at Sea gets involved in these cases, we are the last stop shop for these seafarers when they've not had their issues picked up by anybody else. Last night, on the Mediterranean, the European migrant and refugee emergency has not gone away. Not for this man. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Not for this woman. Rescue blankets, we need rescue blankets. Rescue blankets. Not for the volunteers struggling to cope. So we've all seen these horrific images of migrants trying to make perilous journeys across really treacherous waters. Why are people making these journeys? Strictly speaking, those who seek refuge seek out of finding security, escaping harm. This is the basic definition of seeking asylum from persecution. But the lines have been blurred the past 10 years for people fleeing security from environmental disasters such as climate change, those fleeing gang-based violence, all of those are grounds that could amount to persecution. And of course, you have those who are termed economic migrants who, according to the public, are not worth international protection. International law forbids Um, any state to turn back a refugee to her country where she fears persecution. So how is it that countries are turning away migrants when they are forbidden to do that? States try to externalise migration management, so they want to halt 
people from coming into Europe. They're employing measures such as pushbacks operation or giving another country the permission to do that, but implicitly so less and less people arrive in Europe. So if someone tries to rescue a, a migrant ship, what kind of challenges do they face? Well, one of the issues we've seen as our and our organization have reported is the criminalization of search and rescue organization. States do not allow ships to disembark because they know if they do that, then they would be responsible for any processing of asylum claims. We saw a number of civil society NGOs jumping in, helping people at sea. And what states did was to start criminalizing those search and rescue NGOs, and they're doing this by arresting a ship, the captain of the ship, and just subjecting them to an indefinite trial where the NGO needs to invest money to defend itself, to defend its personnel, and effectively it's being stopped from operating at sea. So what are you doing to tackle human rights abuses at sea? Looking at it sort of strategically, firstly, is the issue of awareness, simply being aware that human rights apply at sea as they do on land, which is our founding principle. So our audience is everybody from state to non-state actors, to the commercial industries, to the supply chain. The second point is one of legal fragmentation within the existing legal instruments and, and legal structures. When you look at the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, it does not explicitly talk about human rights within the maritime space. It has articles that refer to actions that protect human rights, such as the right to render assistance at sea for those uh, migrants, say, rescued by commercial vessels. What's now emerging is Lex Specialis explicitly talking about the human rights at sea. In general, international law deals with interstate issues. And the past 40 years, we have seen the emergence of international human rights law, but the sea is a very much different space, geographically, but also legally. We found overlapping and sometimes conflicting jurisdictions. The flag state has exclusive jurisdiction on a vessel. Then it goes into a port. Then there is the coastal state's jurisdiction. Then we have the seafarers on board or the fishers who are nationals of different jurisdictions. So this overlapping of jurisdictions have led to fragmentation of applicable international law and also have made enforcement very, very difficult. What is Human Rights at Sea doing about this issue of legal fragmentation? Yes, so at Human Rights at Sea, we came up with the idea of developing a soft law, in other words, a non-legally binding instrument that incorporates all these applicable frameworks in the maritime space, which is international human rights law, international refugee law, international maritime law and law of the sea principles. This project is called the Geneva Declaration on Human Rights at Sea. It's a declaration, so it's something that declares the problem, explains why the declaration is needed. It does not seek to replace existing law or create new law. Our vision is to be able to lead this project at the state level and gain state endorsement. But the declaration can be used by uh, non-state actors, such as those who rescue people at sea, because there are principles on the rights and duties of those who are saving lives at sea. 
I would say the declaration would be a good instrument for law enforcement officials, Coast Guard officials, why not refugee uh, status determination officers who are trying to reach a decision on uh, international protection and anyone who is interested in or working at sea. So I know that Human Rights at Sea have been working on an arbitration framework. Why is that needed? Our concept is to use the well-established arbitration tribunal system to produce a new ad hoc international tribunal, which is pro bono, supported by council and judiciary around the world with a dedicated set of new rules in order to achieve arbitral awards which are binding on the employer as brought by a victim um, if they have not been able to find satisfaction by any other route. It's never been done before. We're working very closely with the international law firm Shearman and Sterling, bringing together key people around the world who understand the international law instrument, but also the arbitration system to develop a, a new tribunal. The difficult part is that we need to get, first of all, the employers of uh, seafarers and fishers, owners, insurers, banks, what we're aiming to do is bring in both the insurance and the banking industry to make it a requirement that such clauses have to be made available in work agreements in order that we can establish the system. Uh, unfortunately, at this time, there's not an ability to retrospectively deal with abuses under this system. But again, this is all part of what we're slowly working our way through. So what are the biggest challenges you're facing as an organisation moving forward? The scope is so large and the resources we have so limited. Frankly, all the cases that come through the front door need to be looked at. I go to bed at night often feeling guilty that we haven't been able to support or positively resolve an issue because we do not have the resources to do so. So if anyone listening wants to know more about your organisation or wants to get involved, what should they do? Well, at the, fir the first instance, we would say, just be aware of what we're doing. You can subscribe to our newsletter and we would ask all the listeners, if they have an interest in our work, to really become advocates through their social networks. What we'd really like to see is some leadership in the legal education fraternity of maybe having a voluntary module on human rights at sea. I mean, we have huge amounts of materials, examples, discussion materials. We have access to some of the best academics in the world on this topic. What we would like to see are law schools getting actively involved and having this as a module, bringing it into the curriculum for future lawyers. As I've always said, in every lawyer, there's always a human rights lawyer. It's just whether or not uh, you want to take the pay cut to do the work. The Universal Podcast of Human Rights was produced by Isma Ayub and me, Sam Grimley, with additional research by Hannah Anson, Vanessa Gunn, Greg Advana, and Lisa Maria Yulkunen-Mullet.